that is a Saturday, <coughs> the 19th of December, and it's just 12 days left until the last day of this year. And today, <coughs> here in the monastery, we had uh, four monks who just ordained as bhikkhus. So they had this faith and the intention to take ordination. And uh, in the time of the Buddha, uh, he, the Buddha himself, was the one who initially ordained monks. And he would do this uh, through a very, initially through a very simple means. He would say, uh, come here, bhikkhu, and live this holy life uh, for the end of suffering. But as Buddhism started to spread throughout the Indian subcontinent, then there were more of the Buddha's senior disciples who got students themselves who wanted to ordain. And it became very difficult uh, for them to take all of these young men to the Buddha. So the Buddha gave his permission for these monks to give ordination themselves if they were over uh, 10 years as a monk. And the method of doing this was through taking the refuges. So they would recite Buddhang Saranangachami, Dhammang Saranangachami, Sankang Saranangachami, and then Dutiyampi, Tatiyampi. So recite these refuges three times. And just by doing this, this very easy method, they were monks. But after this, the Buddha laid down more procedures for ordination. And so there's the preceptor, the upajaya, and then there's also the uh, chanting ajans. And if there's an ordination that happens in a city where there are many monks, then they need at least 20 monks present for the ordination for it to be valid or perhaps over 10. Uh, but if they're in the countryside or in a place where monks are very hard to come by, um, then the number reduces. And all they need is enough for an official Sangha uh, transaction. So if all of these requirements are met, then the candidate uh, will succeed in becoming a bhikkhu and they'll get the robes given to them, which are the victory banners, the victory banner of the Arahants. So when someone's child comes to ordain, and then their parents bow to them, they humble themselves to their own child. And so this is the, the great goodness of this tradition, of this robe that they have. Um, that normally it's the child that pays respects or humbles themselves to their parents, but after ordination, their parents bow. And they're creating merit through this act of humility. And so they see that those who come to ordain really have that sincerity to do so. And they get these robes, the victory banner of the Arahant. And people have respect 
in this tradition, in the goodness of uh, the monastic form. And so monks can also have respect for lay people as well. And there are many lay people whose uh, the quality of their hearts is very high. Perhaps they are sotapanas. So monks have respect for them within their hearts. And these different forms of monasticism or uh, being a lay person, these are conventions. So when a monk ordains, then their preceptor gives them uh, five practices to take up, or five meditation objects. And this is the objects of hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. And it's necessary for the preceptor to give them these five objects, to train them in this uh, during the ordination. And so all of us should do so, train ourselves following this until we are skilled at it, until we master this practice. And also when a monk ordains, they um, make a determination or they utter words of truth, which is that they determine to ordain for the sake of Nibbāna, for making Nibbāna clear and evident. And how do they do that? Well, it's through sincerity, it's through effort. And our preceptor, he teaches us one means to do this. He gives us the weapons to fight against the defilements. So normally these defilements are contained within our hearts, within our minds. Really both of these words, the heart and the mind, they refer to the knowing element, that which is aware and receives impressions. So the original nature of the mind is that of purity and cleanliness. It's just that with the frequency that these kilesas arise, <coughs> that the heart then seems dirty. And every time there is sense contact, uh, then this leads on to clinging. And this happens very often. Every time we see something, every time we hear something, so every time there's any sort of sense contact, or whether we cognize a thought in our minds, now this is the arising of this pasa. And then from that, there comes vedana, feeling, and then craving, and attachment. And then a sense of self arises. This becomes the cause for stress. So we see that in just one day, the number of lives that we have, that we're born into, are very many. And if we don't have much control over ourselves, then it's possible to fall into hell over and over again, to become a hungry ghost, or a hell being, or a, an animal. But if our mindfulness is good, if we have patient endurance, if we're restrained within the precepts and we build up goodness, um, then this shows that we are a human, that we keep either the five precepts or the eight precepts, the 227 precepts.
If we see someone doing something good, then we express our appreciation and the joy that we feel in that goodness. And if we do good things ourselves, um, then we feel very happy and at ease. And so these skillful actions, they give our hearts energy. They give them the power of a deva, of a celestial being. And also the chanting that we do gives this effect as well. If we chant it to be so 108 times, then there's joy, there's a sense of inner satisfaction. And we can recollect the good deeds that we've done through our lives, and this can make our minds very bright through this merit. So these are things that we do every day. And we make these forms of merit here within our own hearts. And we chant, and that's merit. We recollect the goodness that we've done, and that's merit. There's also the meditation that we do, the meditation on these objects of kesa, uh, loma, naka, danta, tacho, of hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. And these are the, the objects of meditation that those people who ordain uh, take up. Um, those who are renunciants, who have taken up this practice of nekama. And so how does nekama, renunciation, differ from other virtues that we can be developing? How is it different from letting go? So this nekama is renunciation, it's taking up the practices of a renunciant. And perhaps we do this for one month or maybe for a year. And it's not necessary, however, uh, to ordain as a monk. Uh, it's possible for uh, lay people to take up this renunciation as well. So when people do ordain, then they get the robes. They also shave their hair. Here in Thailand, uh, the monks shave their eyebrows as well. But in other countries, such as Burma or Sri Lanka, they don't. <laughs> However, shaving our eyebrows, it's not, it's not wrong, it's not incorrect. In India, when someone dies, then they shave their head, but they leave just a small amount of hair left. Because shaving the whole head indicates uh, the status of renunciant. You see that... Um, sitting by the Ganges River. Uh, there are barbers there who can very, very quickly shave people's heads because of all the corpses they have to go through. So the reason that we take up this renunciation is for the sake of letting go. And are we able to do this? Are we able to put things down? And for both uh, monks and lay people, um, it's natural that ever since we were born, we have attached to many, many things, and especially this body. And we see it as being ours, as being us. We have all of these skewed and incorrect perceptions with regards to it. Our views just aren't straight. And so we know people who are like this. We know people with skewed perceptions, and they're who we call insane. But if our minds do have these skewed perceptions, um, well, a form of this is seeing the body, 
which is really something that's in constant, but understanding that it's constant. Seeing these bodies which are full of pain as being a source of happiness. Seeing the body that doesn't have a true self as having a true self. That this body, it's not something beautiful, but we perceive it as being beautiful. So how do we fix these? And how do we bring these around to the correct perceptions or accurate perceptions? How do we flip them over into their opposites? Ever since we were born, we have been taught to see the body in this way. We understand it as being something that's permanent and constant, something beautiful, a source of pleasure, that there's a true abiding self within it. And we've had this feeling about our bodies ever since we were born. And perhaps someone tells us that really this thing, it's not self, but we just don't get that feeling. We can't understand what they're saying clearly. A monk may teach us about anatta, but we just don't get it. And that's because we're deluded. It's just like if someone tells us to go to the East, to go to uh, the place where the sun sorry, to, to, to go to the east, and, and that will take us out of suffering. But we have this directly opposite perception. We want to go the other way. We want to go to the west, because we think that in traveling to the west, then we'll be happy. But really, if we want happiness, we need to travel in an eastward direction. So a long time, for a very long time, we have had these skewed perceptions about our bodies. We haven't had any knowledge. And so that's the reason why we need to train. Try to train ourselves to, to free ourselves from this craving. But really, tanha or craving, it can also give us effort as well. It can propel us towards um, putting energy into our studies, into working hard so that we gain lots of wealth. And we think that if we get these things, then we'll be happy. But we can see that there are some people who have gained great success in every worldly aspect. They've studied to a high level. They've succeeded in their careers. They've gained a huge amount of wealth. But even so, in accordance with time, they grow ill. At the end of their lives, they may gain some wisdom, though. They may say, even though I have everything, that these things can't really give me happiness. These things, they don't last for very long. But it's oftentimes that people only understand this when they're on their deathbed. So we see that everything external, all these material things, they really don't last long. This body needs to break apart. And when that happens, then what's left? And a really easy way of putting it is that we have everything that we do simply because we have the breath. We're able to be born because of this breath. We're able to gain any status, any wealth that we do 
because of the breath. But whether people are rich or poor, their breath is the same. Everyone has this breath. Whether someone is born into a very high level of society or a low level, their breath is just the same. So when this breath runs out, then we have to leave. This is something that we really should think about, that we should contemplate. No matter how wealthy we are or poor we are, when the breath is finished, then everyone has to head off. We normally see people as being different, but in truth, we aren't different. So when we have wisdom, then we'll be able to see that these things are not self. It's just that we're normally not able to think in that way. Because ignorance is constantly covering over our hearts. Even though these minds are a knowing element, we don't use them to contemplate. So we need to train them. We need to train our minds. And train them to become new. Because the mind that has ignorance, that has uh, craving and clinging, is an old mind. But what we want is a new one. We want a mind that has this inner nature of awakening within it, that has knowledge, that has wisdom, and that's what we call a new mind. So we gain this through understanding that this body is inconstant, that it's a source of pain, that it doesn't last long, that there's no true self within it. So for me sitting here, giving this Dhamma talk, or for everyone who's sitting and listening, um, we're all just the same. But when the breath runs out, then we're not able to do these things. We have no capabilities in this world anymore. So that we're able to reach this age that we have. Now we're very lucky to have got to this point in our lives. So we use this opportunity to train ourselves to give rise to wisdom so that we're able to let go. So the Buddha taught us to gain wisdom. We need to contemplate into physicality um, and also into mentality as well. So both our own bodies and the bodies of others. And then into the Vedana, the feelings, the memories or perceptions, the thoughts, the sense consciousness that we have. To see all these things as anicca, dukkha, anatta, as inconstant, stressful, as not-self. And these are the uh, causes for wisdom to arise. So when we come to ordain, our preceptor gives us these five objects of hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth and skin. And it's our duty to contemplate into them. He tells us to do this on our ordination day. And so have we thought about this? Have we contemplated into our hair? What's it like? If we don't comb our hair, if we don't wash it at all, if we just let it be as it is for seven days or 15 days, would we be able to put up with it? And could we take it? If just one strand of hair falls into some food, it loses all its value. Or if there's a drink that, is, that has a very high price, if we put one handful of our hair into it, 
it loses all of its value. It suddenly becomes something that's unclean, that's uh, dirty and greasy. And we may wonder whether if we drink it, maybe we'll get ill. And this is our own hair. So we don't need to even talk about putting other people's hair into a drink. We, there's no way that we would consume that. And so this is uh, contemplating into the nature of our hair. And then there's also nails. And so we've uh, evolved a bit and people are starting to paint their nails and decorate them. And we get the impression that there's something very beautiful and something nice. But really, they're just something hard. They're just this earth element. If we put them into uh, some water or into a drink, then we'll feel disgusted by it. And when these nails are attached to our fingers, then we see them as being something beautiful. But when we cut them off, then suddenly they're something disgusting. And then when we die, what will these nails be like then? How will people feel about them? Well, they won't be beautiful, would they? Because they're just attached to a cold, dead finger. There's no heat there. Um, the air's not flowing, and the liquid inside starts to rot. And so things undergo change in this way. And it's also contemplating into our teeth. You see, there's something that are constantly uh, immersed in our saliva. And all the food that we eat, they have to pass through our teeth. Uh, whether it's desserts, um, whether it's savory dishes, we have to chew all of these using our teeth. And if we don't brush them, we know what that's like. The sugar that we consume uh, gives rise to diseases of the teeth and can give us great pain. And also the bacteria in our mouths uh, that are used to digest the food, it starts to give off a foul smell. And so the teeth are constantly surrounded by these disgusting things. And so we need to brush them often. And then after a while we need to go to a dentist to try and fix them. We see that they're not beautiful. And even though we may hear this, and still some people get that impression that they are something attractive. And so the teachers, the great teachers, um, they tell us that really these teeth are just bones. And they're white, just like our bones are. They're made of the same element as our bones. They're not attractive. It's something we should contemplate well. And then our skin. What does our skin cover and what's it like? We may wear very expensive clothes that we've washed very well, that we've ironed very neatly. But after just one or two days of being in contact with our skin, then we can't take these clothes any longer. We have to go and wash them because they're dirty. And especially if we sweat a lot, then they become dirty very quickly. Maybe we've washed our robes as monks, but as not long, um, they become something disgusting. So before, they weren't disgusting, but in being in contact with our bodies, they become disgusting. We contemplate the four requisites of clothing, of food, of shelter, of medicine in this way. 
that initially they're not something dirty, they're not something dirty, but in contacting our bodies, they become dirty. And so if the weather's very hot, we sweat a lot, then we need to wash our clothes um, even more often, because all of these dirty things, they come out through the pores of our skin. We see that really the skin, it's not something that's beautiful. And, and because it's of that nature, we need to wash it very often. We need to use soap uh, to rub away its grease. And after doing that, then we can feel at ease. But in not long, it becomes dirty again, so we have to wash it all over again. So this hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin is something that are unclean. And we should contemplate into this nature. And when we do so, then we can feel at ease. So we contemplate the external body, the bodies of ourselves and of others, but there's also the body within the body. And what's that like? What's there? Well, it's all the things inside. It's uh, our heart, our lungs, the kidneys, the liver, the urine, the feces, the blood, all the different uh, hard and liquid things, our brain as well. And these are what make up the body within the body. So we contemplate uh, both the external body and this body in the body. And sometimes when we do this, the heart really feels at ease. It feels very satisfied, contented. And through seeing that this physical form is not something beautiful, then the heart becomes very bright and clear. It does so through seeing that beauty exists in the corpse of a ghost. So how do, what does that actually mean? Um, practicing to see this way, to see the corpse of a ghost. Well, that's just something that's dead already, right? And how is that beautiful? How is a corpse beautiful? How could a ghost be beautiful? But its beauty lies in our hearts. That when we see its nature, that it's like this, that it's something unattractive, then our hearts become very beautiful. If they're deluded, however, then they're dark. And this darkness means that the heart is old. And it's old because we've experienced this darkness for countless lives already. We've been deluded for a very, very long time. Deluded merely into these four elements. And in this life, we go and become deluded about these things all over again. And that's because our mindfulness and our samadhi are not firmly established. We don't see these things, we don't understand them clearly because of this. So if wisdom does arise, then we'll understand that these bodies are not beautiful. And in doing so, the heart becomes very bright. It becomes new. And it's new because it has wisdom, because it has this radiance to it. So meditating and developing samadhi is a form of merit that we create. So there's the merit of generosity, 
bed of Nekama, of keeping sila. So it's, we can keep the five precepts, the eight precepts, the 227 precepts. And it's not necessary to ordain externally, we can ordain within our own hearts. And previously in Thailand there was a tradition uh, for people to ordain as Brahmins. Uh, and this was considered a way that lay people could practice uh, nekama, this uh, renunciation, become renunciants. And they would usually shave their heads to do this. But nowadays it's not necessary for people to shave their hair. They can come to the monastery and keep the eight precepts or do that at home. And this too is practicing nekama, renunciation. Because it's a way of removing ourselves from the chaos of the world to one degree. And we do this to develop samadhi within our hearts, to establish um, strength of mind, to gather our minds together. So we contemplate the nature of this body, both the external and the internal body, as being something that's not beautiful both our bodies and the bodies of other people as well. And through this, the mind becomes very clear and very joyous. And it shows that it's uh, developed, that it's, it's raising up. Both the body and the mind are buoyant. So for some people, uh, it's difficult for them to contemplate into a suba. Uh, this practice of seeing the body as being unattractive. So instead, they can see the body as being the four elements, a collection of earth, water, fire, and air. And this too is a way of developing samadhi, and samadhi should grow through this practice until we can see into emptiness. And this emptiness itself is letting go. Initially, it's just a temporary letting go, um, letting go of the body, changing the skewed, perceptions that we had and making them right. Um, that we see this body as being a self, but seeing that really there's no true self there to it. So changing our wrong views about this body, that it's something beautiful, that it's something constant, pleasurable, and it's ours, and seeing that really it's not that. And the heart becomes new because knowledge and wisdom has arisen. However, if the heart is deluded, then it's just old all over again. So we train ourselves um, in this path of practice. Um, and even though these kilesas are present in our hearts, we try not to follow them. And we listen and try to gain a sense of what's right and what's wrong knowing about merit and demerit, trying to straighten out our views, understanding this path of practice, understanding how to be generous, how to keep the precepts, um, gaining a faith in the law of kamma, being humble, listening to the Dhamma, discussing the Dhamma, or if we have Dhamma within us, then sharing that with other people. And these are all skillful and meritorious actions. So when we um, have merit through these actions, then we can spread that with others. And this is a way of displaying the metta that we have, the kindness that we have for others, wishing for those who are suffering to be relieved of suffering.
So we can see that it's important for us to develop goodness, um, because we don't get to keep the things that we gain in this world. It's necessary for all of us to die. The things we have here, they don't last very long. They're just temporary things. And, um, so we don't know when this is going to happen either. And today we may go to someone else's funeral, and maybe tomorrow other people will be coming to us. So we should establish our mindfulness, we should contemplate, we should practice, and contemplate these five objects, hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin, and can peel our skin off and see what's there underneath. And if we did that, then the blood would start flowing out, and there would be that stink, uh, the stench that you get from raw meat, that you get from walking into a butcher's shop. And uh, and that's because of all the blood. And so for ourselves, if we uh, peeled our skin off, then we would get that stench. And if other people uh, peeled their skin off, then it would have the same disgusting smell. So this is the way, uh, the path that we use to practice. And uh, it's something that we can do, but it requires our effort. And if uh, we don't put our effort in, then we're not going to experience samadhi, for instance. But this is the way that Nambucha trained himself and also taught for others. So we should practice this way. We should contemplate these things until we see clearly. And in doing this, then the heart becomes very peaceful, very still. We see into the nature of conventions and the heart is liberated. And we have seen into the Dhamma. But what do we depend on to do this? What can we rely upon? Well, if we take two rocks and we strike them uh, together, is there going to be any fire that appears? If those rocks are just sitting there and we look at them, do we see any fire within them? Or we don't. It's only when we strike them together that a spark happens. And so this is the way that some awakened teachers have taught, that there is fire within those stones. And in the same way, within all of our hearts, there is this inner Buddha, this inner nature of awakening. We all have this Buddha inside of us. Knowledge is there. Um, this wisdom is there. It abides within our hearts. But if we don't have effort, then that Buddha, it can't arise within us. And the kilesas will just be covering over the heart, just like they always have been. So it requires our effort for wisdom to arise, for these kilesas to be extracted, uh, for this Buddha to be born inside of us, and for us to turn into a Savaka Buddha, or someone or a disciple who has become awakened through the teachings of the Buddha. And this happens gradually, um, slowly but surely within our hearts. And so everyone has this Buddha within themselves, but in order to, for it to be born, for it to arise, it requires our training. And if we don't do that, then it can't come up. And just like, even if we want fire, but we don't strike those two rocks together, then 
a spark can't arise. So even if we want this inner Buddha, but we don't practice, we don't put in our effort, then that can't come up. But through our efforts, then it can be born. So for those who took ordination, the Upajaya gave them these five objects of contemplation. So whatever posture they're doing, uh, they're in, they should be going through these so that the heart feels easy and at peace. Should do a lot of walking meditation, sitting meditation, uh, get the mind to become still and silent and to understand the nature of this body as something that has to break apart, it's something that isn't beautiful. And in doing this, we will be able to fix the skewed perceptions that we have, or the delusion that we have. Um, seeing these things as being beautiful, as being a source of pleasure, as being constant, as being a true self, we are able to cure these, to fix these. And the way that we do that is through practicing the Dhamma. So for those who just took ordination, um, and they only have a short time in the robes, and they should meditate a lot, try to develop mindfulness a lot. And for those who have ordained for a long time already, they shouldn't forget these practices either. But always be trying to contemplate, to go through these objects that the preceptor gave us until we are skilled in them, until we've mastered them, until we can look through the body and understand it clearly. And so they say that contemplating the body is like drinking ambrosia. And this ambrosia, it's an elixir that will prevent us from dying. But how is that so? Well, if we don't contemplate, then we're deluded. And if we're deluded, then we're going to have to get old, we're going to have to get sick, we're going to have to die, and we have to do this over and over again. But if we contemplate, then we won't die. And why won't we die? Well, it's because we're not born. Because the heart has reached into Nibbāna. It's gone above the world. It's in the state of Lokuttara. And some people ask, what's that like? What's Lokuttara? Um, being above the world or knowing the world, what's that like? And it's something that you can't tell or teach. All you can instruct or point to with words is the path of practice that will lead there, that will take people to seeing that state for themselves, that will move people from being putrujanas, uh, someone who is thick with defilements, into a good person, and then to a noble being. This path of practice that makes the heart new, that renews it constantly, and that changes it, that lifts it up to a higher level. So both when we say this word heart and mind, really it's just this one thing. It's the knowing element. And this is what uh, we, this, this is, becomes the vessel for this inner nature of awakening to arise. And it arises through our efforts. That no one else can do it for us. The Buddha was just the one who taught the way. But we need to practice uh, following his teachings in order for this inner nature of, of awakening to arise in our own hearts. <clears throat>